0: Welcome to this E-Cystic Fibrosis Review podcast. E-Cystic Fibrosis Review is presented by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. This program is supported by an educational grant from Abbott Laboratories, Gilead Sciences Medical Affairs, and Vertex Pharmaceuticals. This podcast is a companion activity to our October 2011 newsletter topic, Exacerbation Therapies. Our guest is that issue's author, Dr. Chris Goss from the University of Washington in Seattle. This activity has been developed for the cystic fibrosis care team, including physicians, nurses, respiratory therapists, dieticians, social workers, and physical therapists caring for patients with cystic fibrosis. There are no fees or prerequisites for this activity. The accreditation and credit designation statements can be found at the end of this podcast. For additional information about accreditation, Hopkins policies, expiration dates, and to take the post-test to receive credit online, please go to our website newsletter archive www.ecysticfibrosisreview.org and click on the November 2011 podcast link. Learning objectives for this program are that after participating in this activity, the participant will demonstrate the ability to discuss the current clinical definition of an acute pulmonary exacerbation in cystic fibrosis, describe the current approach to the treatment of an acute pulmonary exacerbation, and explain the complexities of assessing antimicrobial resistance patterns via sputum isolates. I'm Bob Busker, Managing Editor of E-Cystic Fibrosis Review. On the line, we have with us our October newsletter issues author. Dr. Chris Goss is the Associate Director of the Adult Cystic Fibrosis Clinic at the University of Washington and the Co-Director of the CF Therapeutics Development Network Coordinating Center in Seattle. Dr. Goss is also an Associate Professor of Medicine and an Adjunct Professor of Pediatrics at the University of Washington. Dr. Goss has disclosed that he receives grants and research support from the CF Foundation, NIH. TransAve Incorporated, and Vertex Pharmaceuticals. He has also received honoraria from CaloBios Pharmaceuticals, Roche, and TransAve Incorporated. His presentation today will not include discussion of any off-label or unapproved treatments for CF. Dr. Goss, welcome to this e-Cystic Fibrosis Review Podcast.
1: Well, thank you very much for having me.
0: In your newsletter issue, you presented some of the most relevant research findings on exacerbations in lung function and some of the most current data on treatment approaches. What I'd like for us to do today is focus on the implications that information has in the exam room and at the bedside. Uh, So if you would, Dr. Goss, start us out by describing a patient.
1: The first patient we're going to discuss is a 35-year-old female with cystic fibrosis with genotype Delta F508 homozygous who developed increasing congestion beginning a week ago. Upon evaluation, the subject was afebrile with a mild tachycardia heart rate of 100 and normal oxygen saturation of 98% on room air. On physical exam, the patient had bilateral upper lobe crackles, which were new. On laboratory evaluation, the patient was noted to have decreased lung function as evaluated by spirometry. Forced expiratory volume in one second or FEV1 was 1.03 liters, 31% of predicted. Forced vital capacity was 1.29 liters, or 32% of predicted, with an FEV1 to FVC ratio of 0.84. Prior FEV1 was 1.15 liters, and the prior FVC, or force vital capacity, was 1.53 liters, representing a significant drop in her lung function. The patient was chronically infected with Pseudomonas aeruginosa and Staphylococcus aureus.
0: I just want to break away for a second to let our listeners know that the patient's radiograph can be viewed in the transcript version of this podcast. So, now, my first question, Dr. Goss, a very simple question Would we call this event an exacerbation? This
1: event is consistent with an acute pulmonary exacerbation in a CF adult with new onset lower respiratory symptoms, new crackles on physical exam, and a drop in lung function of greater than 10% of both the FEV1 and the FVC. It's important to note that there are no consensus diagnostic criteria for this clinical entity of acute pulmonary exacerbation and there's no consensus also for the duration of symptoms that must precede the clinical presentation, and some clinical trials have used three or five days. The clinical presentation of these events will likely differ by age and disease severity, so young children may not be able to do spirometry. Also, it should be noted that dropping your lung function by 10 percent is easier when you have poor lung function because the magnitude of a 10 percent drop is much less.
0: Based on the research you reviewed in the newsletter, how should this patient be treated?
1: This patient should be treated as an inpatient unless adequate resources exist at home for home IV therapy and airway clearance. Now, Even though the evidence is very limited, the patient should receive two drugs with activity against Pseudomonas aeruginosa from the prior isolates the patient had. One should also consider recovering Staphylococcus aureus. It's important to note that routine maintenance medications and airway clearance should be continued during the current treatment of an acute pulmonary exacerbation.
0: Let's look at follow-up for this patient. What would be required?
1: It's an excellent question. Lung function should be checked at the end of an antibiotic course to document recovery, regardless of the site of treatment, either if they're getting antibiotics at home or in the hospital. Symptom resolution should also be documented. If lung function recovery does not occur, one should look for complicating factors impacting cystic fibrosis. These include asthma, allergic bronchopulmonary aspergillosis, and acquisition of a new organism.
0: Uh, Briefly, if you would, Dr. Goss, what are the chief clinical implications of this event?
1: Interestingly, upwards of 25% of patients do not appear to regain baseline function after this event. For subjects averaging more than two exacerbations per year, they may have a higher risk of death or lung transplantation. For subjects averaging more than two exacerbations per year, they may have a higher risk of losing 5% of their lung function, based on an observational cohort study in Canada highlighted in the newsletter. It's important to note that this may not apply to other care settings outside of Canada, but the data is concerning.
0: Uh, Thank you, Dr. Goss. Uh, Take us now to another patient, if you would.
1: Okay, I'd be glad to. This is a 22-year-old male with cystic fibrosis genotype delta F508 homozygous with mild pulmonary impairment who developed increasing lower respiratory congestion and sputum production over the space of six days after a recent upper respiratory tract infection. He thought his symptoms would abate, but then he developed new onset severe dyspnea. His parents drove him to a local emergency room where he was rapidly evaluated His vital signs were notable for an oxygen saturation of 94%, but a respiratory rate of 28. He noted left-sided chest pain. He had a chest radiograph obtained, which noted a large left pneumothorax and clear evidence of bilateral saccular bronchiectasis consistent with cystic fibrosis. A chest tube was placed with resultant relief of dyspnea.
0: And again, I want to let our listeners know that a radiograph of this patient is included in the podcast transcript. Now, Dr. Goss, this patient's presentation is quite a bit different from the first patient you described. Would we also call this event an exacerbation?
1: This patient has clinical symptoms, again, consistent with an acute pulmonary exacerbation, but this time complicated by pneumothorax. Because of his pneumothorax, spirometry cannot be performed. This does not exclude a diagnosis of acute pulmonary exacerbation. Pneumothoraces can occur independent of an acute exacerbation or in the setting of an acute exacerbation, as in this case. The key risk is likely bronchiectasis abutting the pleura.
0: Uh, Is there guidance in how long this patient should be treated with antibiotics?
1: The current recommendation is two weeks. The evidence supporting this duration of therapy is weak. There are no clinical trials that have specifically addressed antibiotic duration in CF exacerbation. Looking at observational data in the US from the Cystic Fibrosis Registry, treatment duration varies widely.
0: I want to ask you about synergy testing of the organisms grown from this patient's sputum. Can that be used to guide the antibiotic treatment?
1: A recent systematic review of the literature by Flume and colleagues highlighted in the newsletter recommended against the routine use of synergy testing guiding therapy. Synergy testing is expensive, and in the one carefully designed prospective randomized controlled trial showed no demonstrable effect on outcome. Clinicians typically select antibiotics based on standard susceptibility testing of the pathogens from the prior sputum. It is important to note that synergy testing should be considered for selected patients like those with highly resistant organisms prior to lung transplantation.
0: Talk to us about dosing, Dr. Goss. In the case you presented, let's say this patient grows pseudomonas sensitive to tobramycin. Should he receive the tobramycin once a day or three times a day? Is there an optimum dosing schedule?
1: The standard approach to antibiotic treatment for CF patients infected with pseudomonas aeruginosa continues to be the use of two drugs with anti-pseudomonal activity to improve antibiotic activity while reducing selection pressure for resistant strains. One of these agents is usually an aminoglycoside, and tobramycin is the most commonly used in the United States. In regards to aminoglycosides, once-daily versus three-times-daily intravenous dosing has been evaluated in a systematic review by Flume and colleagues reported in the newsletter. The current recommendations note that it is preferable to employ once-daily dosing for aminoglycosides compared to three-times-daily dosing. One of the findings in a well-done prospective clinical trial on aminoglycoside dosing noted relative protection of the kidneys in Q-day dosing. Once daily dosing of aminoglycosides was graded as a C in the systematic review. This means that there is moderate or high certainty that the net benefit
0: is small. Uh, In this specific patient, the one you described, what treatment was undertaken and what were the results?
1: This subject received a standard 14 days of intravenous antibiotics with intravenous ceftazidime and intravenous tobramycin. The tobramycin was dosed once daily. The patient also had the placement of a small bore chest tube to drain his pneumothorax. The patient had full recovery of lung function and no recurrence of his pneumothorax after removal of his chest tube.
0: Uh, Thank you, Dr. Goss, for that discussion and explanation. I'd like to shift our focus a bit to look at antibiotic selection. So if you would, doctor, start us out with another patient presentation.
1: This next patient is a 16-year-old male with increased congestion and in sputum production. The patient had a sputum culture from two months before when he was in clinic. The susceptibility tests were performed using standard methodologies on this sputum with organisms based in a non-biofilm-based sensitivity testing. The sputum growths grew three different colony types of pseudomonas. Colony type 1 was only resistant to imipenem and intermediate to levoquin and ciprofloxacin. Colonies type 2 and 3 were resistant to both ciprofloxacin and levoquin. This case points out the challenge of picking antibiotics based on sensitivity to various antibiotics when subjects grow multiple colony types of bacteria, in this case, pseudomonas. Uh,
0: Another note to our listeners, this patient's specific sputum sensitivity results are available in the transcript. Now, Dr. Goss, talk to us, if you would, about the current standard approach to choosing antibiotics for a patient like this.
1: CF clinicians usually pick a combination of two antibiotics representing two different classes of agents that best cover the organisms found in the sputum. As you can see by this patient above, the challenge is picking antibiotics that would cover all the organisms. A reasonable combination for this patient may be intravenous tobramycin and intravenous ceftazidime or meropenem. I would not use oral levoquin or oral ciprofloxacin, given the resistance patterns of the organisms noted.
0: Is there any surety that the patient will respond to either of these medications or, or the combination of these medications?
1: Unfortunately not. Most patients will respond, but there are good clinical studies that have shown that choosing antibiotics based on susceptibility testing in the sputum does not necessarily predict response. Formal susceptibility testing takes up to seven days after a sample is delivered to the laboratory. By this time, most patients have already improved on their current regimen, regardless of whether it is appropriate for the organisms grown in the sputum. Susceptibility testing may reflect only those organisms expectorated in one particular sample at one point in time.
0: Now, we know that established pseudomonal airway infections in CF patients are likely to be growing a biofilm, which would enhance the organism's resistance to both host defenses as well as antibiotics. So, shouldn't biofilm-based susceptibility testing methods improve clinical outcomes? Unfortunately,
1: the answer appears to be no. The observed agreement between a drug class combinations selected by biofilm susceptibility and by conventional susceptibility testing is almost 50%. In a subset of patients, biofilm susceptibility testing may benefit patients, but it's unknown how to characterize those patients. In a recent paper discussed in the newsletter, Dr. Moskowitz and colleagues showed that there was decrease in bacterial load in the sputum and improvements of lung function regardless of which method the patient was randomized to, i.e. standard susceptibility testing or biofilm-based susceptibility testing. Thus, there appeared to be no clear clinical benefit from using biofilm susceptibility testing versus standard susceptibility testing.
0: Now, the data by Moskowitz that you just outlined and that you detailed in more depth in the newsletter issue, it really seems counterintuitive to expectations. What might explain this lack of clear benefit of using biofilm-based susceptibility testing to guide antibiotic therapy? Do we know?
1: There are a number of possible explanations for the negative results of this study. The first is it was a fairly small study with a small sample size. And given both groups had a good clinical response to therapy when stable, showing a significant difference would require a very large sample size. The subjects were also clinically stable, and the investigators got fairly unlucky based on the antibiotic resistance patterns of the organisms. Maybe it would work in the setting of an acute exacerbation or in a subset of patients where the antibiotic choices differ substantially between the two susceptibility testing methods. Susceptibility testing of a few isolates may vastly underestimate the microbiological diversity of chronic CF lung infections. And maybe neither method is adequate to trying to select appropriate antibiotics
0: for CF patients being treated for an acute pulmonary exacerbation. Thank you for that explanation. And we'll return with Dr. Chris Goss from the University of Washington in just a moment.
2: Hello, I'm Megan Ramsey, nurse practitioner and clinical coordinator for adults at the Johns Hopkins Cystic Fibrosis Program at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. I am one of the program directors of E-Cystic Fibrosis Review. These podcast programs will be provided on a regular basis to enable you to receive additional current, concise, peer-reviewed information through podcasting, a medium that is gaining wide acceptance throughout the medical community. In fact, today, there are over 5,000 medical podcasts. To receive credit for this educational activity and to review Hopkins policies, please go to our website at www.e-cystic fibrosisreview.org This podcast is part of e- Cystic Fibrosis Review, a bi-monthly email delivered program available by subscribing. Each issue reviews a current literature on focused topics important to clinicians caring for patients with cystic fibrosis. Continuing education credit for each newsletter and each podcast is provided by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine for physicians and by the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing for nurses. Subscription to e Cystic Fibrosis Review is provided without charge, and nearly a thousand of our colleagues have already become subscribers. The topic focused literature reviews help them keep up to date on issues critical to maintaining the quality of care for their patients. For more information to register to receive E Cystic Fibrosis Review without charge and to access back issues, please go to www.ecysticfibrosisreview.org.
0: Welcome back to this E Cystic Fibrosis Review podcast. I'm Bob Busker, managing editor of the program. Our guest is Dr. Chris Goss from the Adult Cystic Fibrosis Center at the University of Washington in Seattle, and our topic is pulmonary exacerbation therapies. We've been discussing how the information in the research publications reviewed in our October 2011 newsletter can help improve patient care. Uh, So if you would, Dr. Goss, please present us with another patient scenario.
1: The next case I have is an 18-year-old female with cystic fibrosis genotype Delta F508 homozygous. Who presented with two weeks of increasing congestion and sputum production? She denied any pleurisy or chest pain with deep inspiration nor hemoptysis. She did feel that her appetite was markedly decreased and had lost almost five pounds since her last clinical evaluation. She was afebrile in clinic with normal blood pressure and a heart rate of 75. On physical exam, her chest was clear without crackles, but did have scattered ronchi that cleared with cough and bilateral wheezes. Her lung function was as follows. Her force vital capacity, or FVC, was 4.25 liters, 106% of predicted, and this is down about 100 cc's from her baseline. Her FEV1, or forced expiratory volume in one second, was 3.02 liters, or 87% of predicted, down 350 cc's from her baseline. Her FEV1 to FVC ratio was 0.71. Sputum culture, from her last clinical evaluation, grew 2-plus methicillin-sensitive staph aureus, 1-plus pseudomonas aeruginosa, and 3-plus stenotrophomonas multifilia. Her chest radiograph was unremarkable, except for mild bilateral upper lobe bronchiectasis. She received two weeks of antibiotics, but did feel improved symptomatically, but had not had recovery of her lung function to baseline. Repeat sputum culture grew a new organism, and the same organisms noted above. The new organism was methicillin-resistant Staphylococcus aureus, or MRSA. Addition of treatment for MRSA led to resolution of her lung function back to her baseline in this case.
0: All right, first question in this case Which action or combination of actions potentially prevented more long term lung function loss in this patient?
1: This patient was followed closely in this case, including documentation of improvement in lung function rather than just symptomatic assessment. This assessment may have prevented unrecognized long term lung function decline. In a recent paper by Sanders and colleagues, highlighted in the newsletter, upwards of 25% of CF patients do not recover to within 10% of their lung function. That was a determined baseline prior to exacerbation. In this case, one potential reason for failure to recover was the presence of MRSA, not detected in earlier sputum cultures. Several recent epidemiologic studies have noted that MRSA may lead to more rapid lung function decline and earlier death in CF. It is important to document resolution of both symptoms and spirometry at the end of a pulmonary exacerbation to ensure that that event does not lead to incremental lung function loss.
0: Uh, Talk to us about other potential reasons that a patient's clinical response to antibiotics may not correlate with antimicrobial sensitivities noted in the sputum.
1: Recent work from Moat and colleagues outlined in the newsletter noted that Pseudomonas aeruginosa within each sputum specimen had tremendous diversity and that there was rapid turnover of haplotype through time. Isolates within a patient's sputum had significant phenotypic variation regarding virulence factors and, importantly, resistance patterns in patients in this study. Given this data, an isolate picked from the sputum may not be the dominant organism related to clinical decline. Antibiotic resistance patterns from that isolate picked from the sputum may have nothing to do with their clinical decline, and antibiotics tailored to that organism may not improve their symptomatology.
0: Has the researcher uncovered other potential biomarkers for pseudomonas that might correlate with acute pulmonary exacerbation? In the paper by Moat
1: and colleagues they found that isolates that produced excessive piocyanine were more common in specimens obtained during the exacerbation compared to when patients were stable prior to the exacerbation and after recovery from exacerbation. This may explain potential increased virulence of their strain that they were studying. They were specifically studying the Liverpool epidemic strain isolated from their clinical care centers. They also found that approximately half of the diversity in the study as a whole could be attributed to phenotypic diversity between isolates within the same samples. Interestingly, Moad and colleagues found very little haplotype variation during antibiotic therapy compared to periods of clinical stability. So it appeared the diversity decreased during antibiotic therapy.
0: Uh, Thank you, doctor. Let's shift our focus now to a more general discussion. In your opinion, What are the key knowledge gaps that remain in our understanding of pulmonary exacerbations?
1: Some of the key gaps remaining in our knowledge regarding the management of acute pulmonary exacerbation were highlighted in the systematic review covered by Flume and colleagues in the newsletter. They include, what is the optimal duration of therapy? As I noted, we commonly treat for 14 days. That may not be optimal. An additional important question is for patients infected with pseudomonas, are two antibiotics needed? Often we use one agent of each antibiotic class based on susceptibility testing. Another important question that really is not answered is are standard susceptibility testing methods of any utility in the clinical management of CF patients? I do believe that they are helpful to document the evolution of new resistant strains, but their clinical utility has not been shown. There's also a very important question about what is happening to bacterial populations and diversity before, during, and after an acute pulmonary exacerbation. I think the paper by Moad and colleagues have only highlighted the complexity of sputum microbiology, and I think many studies need to be done in this area.
0: Let me follow up then on that last point. What other studies are currently underway, including research that has not yet been published that might address these specific gaps? There is an important initiative
1: supported by the CF Foundation to start to create the infrastructure to conduct comparative trials in the management of CF pulmonary exacerbation in real-world settings. Some have termed these clinical trials comparative effectiveness trials. A number of investigators have begun to work to also unravel the complexities of bacterial communities inhabiting the CF lung. These studies may help clarify the pathophysiology of an acute exacerbation and may help justify how we choose our antibiotics. A large NIH and CF-supported study is just beginning to try to evaluate the efficacy of identifying pulmonary exacerbations earlier using home spirometry and home symptom monitoring. This study will test the hypothesis that identifying these events earlier can improve clinical outcome in patients, both based on lung function and symptoms and quality of life.
0: Until more evidence-based data becomes available, doctor, what's your best advice for clinicians in managing exacerbations?
1: I will continue to obtain sputum culture sensitivities, and I will continue to use that sensitivity data to base my antibiotic choices I will also continue to use two anti-pseudomodal agents for 14 days to treat an acute exacerbation in cystic fibrosis. In regards to the site of care, I will continue to employ home IV antibiotics in selected cases where I believe standard airway clearance and nutritional support can be provided, and in cases where families and patients can safely deliver home intravenous antibiotics. In cases where I don't believe this can be delivered appropriately and safely, I would recommend that the patients continue to be hospitalized for two
0: weeks. Dr. Goss, please take the final word on exacerbation therapies.
1: Well, I think it's important to place pulmonary exacerbations in the realm of new therapies. My hope is that new therapies prevent pulmonary exacerbations and that they prevent the potential lung function decline associated with those exacerbations. I do believe pulmonary exacerbations are a very important clinical event in the lives of CF patients. They are associated with significant healthcare costs, quality of life, and increased symptoms and burden of therapies. I believe that if we can prevent them or treat them in a better fashion, more efficient fashion, we will improve the lives of our CF patients until therapies can be developed which actually prevent lung function decline and prevent CF lung disease.
0: Dr. Chris Goss from the University of Washington, thank you for participating in this e-cystic fibrosis review podcast.
1: Well, I want to thank you very much for having me. It's been a great pleasure to be involved in this.
0: This podcast is presented in conjunction with e-cystic fibrosis review, a peer-reviewed CME and cne accredited literature review emailed monthly to clinicians treating patients with cystic fibrosis. This activity has been planned and implemented in accordance with the essential areas and policies of the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education through the joint sponsorship of the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. The Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education to provide continuing medical education to physicians. For physicians, the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine designates this educational activity for a maximum of 0.75 AMA PRA Category 1 credits. Physicians should only claim credit commensurate with the extent of their participation in the activity. For nurses, this 0.5 contact hour educational activity is provided by the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. Each podcast carries a maximum of 0.5 contact hours. This educational resource is provided without charge, but registration is required. To register to receive E-Cystic Fibrosis Review via email, please go to our website, www.eCysticFibrosisReview.org. The opinions and recommendations expressed by faculty and other experts whose input is included in this program are their own. This enduring material is produced for educational purposes only. Use of the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine name implies review of educational format, design, and approach. Please review the complete prescribing information of specific drugs, combination of drugs, or use of medical equipment, including indications, contraindications, warnings, and adverse effects before administering therapy to patients. Thank you for listening. E-cystic fibrosis review is supported by an educational grant from Abbott Laboratories, Gilead Sciences Medical Affairs, and Vertex Pharmaceuticals. This program is copyrighted with all rights reserved by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine.